following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. I've talked many times uh, about the fact that I, I have been in my life a distance runner. Um, I started in middle school and ran in high school. I ran in college. I ran uh, competitively then after college. Spent a lot of time just running long distances, spending long periods of time running. And if you're not a runner, you probably have the same question that I've been asked about 8 million times, which is this, why? Why would you go out and run like that doesn't seem like fun? That doesn't, just why? And there's, there's just one obvious answer that I've always had, and it's this. Why do I run? Because I couldn't hit a curveball. I loved baseball. Baseball was my favorite sport, and I was, I was decent as a little kid. And then once I got up to the point to where people started throwing harder and the ball started moving as it came into you, I was lost. Like, I was done. I couldn't hit a curveball. So what did I do? I was like, well... I can run for a while. I can, I can do that. So I got into running. But the whole thing was I couldn't hit a curveball. And my dreams of playing for the Chicago Cubs were dashed forever and ever and ever. We've all had dreams, haven't we? We've all had that thing that we wanted to do. But that then we also gave up on when it got too hard. Right? You, you can probably think of something, whether it's a childhood dream or it was maybe starting a business or it was getting some kind of degree or something like that. There was something that you were like, I really want to do this. And then it got really hard. And you're like, nah, I guess it wasn't that important. Where you hit some opposition and you just gave up. And I'm not saying that's always a bad thing. Like for me, giving up baseball was, was a good thing. It led me to something better. But sometimes we give up just because it gets too hard. And anything worth doing in this life, anything that you have done that is worthwhile, you know has been met with opposition, right? And that's true in our faith, too. Whatever God calls you to do in your life will be met with opposition. And again, you know how this works. Because you felt that call in your life to share your faith with that neighbor or that friend. And then you were like, ah, but what are they going to think? How are they going to respond? How are they going to, how's that going to make me feel? And that opposition just made you stop. Or maybe you felt the call to, to give and obediently tithe. But that thought of giving up satellite TV or those impulse buys at the store, just, mm, I don't want to do that. Maybe you felt the call to grow and mature in your faith, and you go, I know what I need to do, but I don't really want to give up the time and the energy to spend that much time reading the Bible or praying or meeting with another believer. Anything worthwhile and anything God calls us to will be met with opposition in our lives. The question is not if we will be met with the opposition. The question is, how will we respond when that opposition comes? How will we combat that opposition as faithful followers of Jesus Christ? In other words, how will we maintain our focus and direction and purpose in the face of opposition? As a result of the building project in Jerusalem that Nehemiah had begun, he 
the people of Jerusalem, and the project itself were all met with opposition. And through Nehemiah's response to three specific battles that we're going to see today, we're going to learn how we can stand strong in God's calling and overcome opposition in our own faith and in our own calling. And the first way we do this is, number one, we trust in God's will. Trust in God's will. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 reads like this. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. And he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. Trust in God's will. If you remember Sanballat, this name should sound familiar if you followed along with our study, because Sanballat has already tried to step in and stop Nehemiah and the Jewish people from the building project. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, this was Nehemiah coming and starting the work on building the wall, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? We said at that time, he was, he was trying to stir up some fear in their hearts that this rebellion against the king would be find, found out and that the people would go, whoa, 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 we don't want to upset the king. Let's just stop right now. But he failed. He failed in his effort. And so now he goes and he seeks more help for his battle. There's says Sanballat in his fury, he asks his allies, he gets together with a bunch of powerful people who maybe they can exert some authority over the Israelites as well. But he gets together with them and he starts asking them these, these rhetorical questions. Right? Who, are these, who do these Jewish people think they are? What do they think they're doing? Do they really think they can do this work? And he's trying to point out to his allies the absurdity of what he sees in Jerusalem. And then Tobias, who, if you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know Tobias is kind of a little rat of a guy. He's always kind of right there by Sanballat's shoulder. He never really takes responsibility for anything, but he wants to kind of chirp in. And he's like, yeah, 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 what he said, uh-huh. Yeah, and if even a fox jumped up there, it would fall over. And so they're constantly coming at the Israelites. And the, their, their attacks, this ridicule, what they're trying to do is simply stir up doubt in the hearts and the minds of the people of Jerusalem. They bring this psychological attack against them. How does Nehemiah respond to this psychological attack? Well, in verse 4 and 5, we see his response. He prays. He prays. He prays for God to step in 
He prays for God to strengthen the people. He prays for God to take care of his enemies. He prays. And as a result, the work continues undaunted. We, every single one of us, we are very easily distracted and discouraged when doubt seemingly overwhelms the work in front of us, right? It's really easy when that one negative thing comes, despite all all the good stuff that's happened, everything God has shown us, one bad thing comes and we're like, oh, yeah, I don't think we can do that. Like, I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't keep going this way. Because that one negative thing, we are very easily distracted when that doubt creeps into our minds. What causes that discouragement and that doubt? We've talked about this a few times before, but you know what causes distraction, discouragement, and doubt? We can always track it back to fear. Fear. Because we don't know what's coming next. Right? That's why we look at it and we go, yeah, that one negative, well, that means it, this may not work out the way that I think it's going to work out, and I don't know how this is all going to come together, so let's, let's just stop right now. It's fear. It's unknown. This is why kids are always afraid of what's under the bed or in the closet, in the dark, right? Because they can't see it. They don't know. The unknown is scary. And when we're scared, when there's fear, we find doubt. We have no idea how the plans will work out. But, like Nehemiah, if we can trust in God's will, God's will that never falters, never fails, and always works out for his purposes, then we don't have to worry about that doubt. We don't have to worry about that discouragement, that fear. Because even though this may not work out the way we think it should work out, we know it's going to work out the way he wants it to work out. And so what do we have to be afraid of? What are we worried about? but to get where Nehemiah is, right, with that trust of God's will in spite of the unknowns that lie ahead of him, in spite of the opposition that's coming at him, we have to start where Nehemiah starts. And Nehemiah starts with prayer. When we face opposition to what God has called us to, the starting point is prayer. In Romans 12, verse 12 Paul writes to the church, and he's talking about who we are to be as as Christians, what it looks like to walk with Christ. In verse 12, he says, this is part of what it looks like to walk with Christ. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, and persistent in prayer. Persistent in prayer doesn't just mean that at some point you find yourself so lost that you can't do anything, then you pray. No, to be persistent in prayer means to constantly, continually be in prayer. It's the first step. It's the middle step. It's the next to last step. It's the last step. It's whatever you call a step beyond the last step. And be persistent in prayer. Because prayer is not only an act of worship. It's not only an act of supplication or asking God for the things that we would like to see him do. It is those things. Right? But prayer is, first and foremost, it is primarily an act of humility. 
Prayer is primarily an act of humility because prayer is an act of saying, yes, God, I can't do this. It's a recognition that we do not have the power, we do not have the strength, we do not have the wisdom, we do not have the ability to carry out what God has put in front of us. And so we begin with prayer by saying, God, you've called me to this, I understand that. I want to see your glory through this, but I can't do it. I need you. Nehemiah's prayer shows that he relies on God to deal with his issue. Right? He doesn't say, God, give me the strength to fight these guys. He says, Father, you take care of them and strengthen us to do the work in front of us. See, when we are 100% dependent upon God, we are reminded that everything he accomplishes, he does because of his will. He is sovereign. He is in control. What he sets up, what he appoints, gets done. Our job is to trust in his will and continue on in his calling, in his purpose, in his mission, in spite of the opposition ahead of us. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, God tells his children, he says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God says everything can fall apart around you. But if you will trust me, if you will trust my will, if you will seek me, I will take care of you. I will strengthen you, as he did the Israelites in this building project. Because through that prayer, through that that calling, that remembrance that God was in control, it says the people were strengthened to continue the work. Notice he doesn't say the opposition was removed from them. He doesn't say the taunting stopped. He says the people were strengthened for the work ahead. If we trust in God's will, we find the strength to push past the opposition. So the question is, do we prayerfully surrender to God's will in our lives? Are we willing when that that difficulty comes when we feel that doubt starting to creep in, okay, God, I, I, I know you've called me this, but I'm, I'm just not sure. Are we willing to surrender to his will and allow that to bring peace and strength to our hearts? We put our full and complete trust in God's will, which then gives us the courage to, number two, stand in God's might or stand in God's strength. Verse 7 through 14 Continues the story, and it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls in Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. 
After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and homes. We trust in God's will. And then we stand in God's might, in God's strength. See, Sanballat and his buddies had failed to intimidate the people of Jerusalem. And the rebuilding continued, right? They, they kept building the walls up higher and higher and connecting the, the gaps in the wall. And Sanballat isn't content with failure once again. And he failed in chapter 2. He fails now. So what does he do here? Now he turns up the pressure. He moves from these psychological attacks. Let's see if we can distract him. Let's see if we can discourage them to now plotting physical violence against them. You notice here in, in verse, seven, verse 7, it says Sambal's fury has spread. Right in verse 7, it said Sambal was furious, so he talked to these other people. Here it says all of them were furious. He's brought some people over to his fury. And Nehemiah, again, stops and he prays in the face of this. And we don't get what that prayer is here, but it says he prays. That's the first thing he does. He prays. And in spite of his, his prayer, it says that, that this fear starts to creep in among the people of Jerusalem. Right? Verse 10 gives us this saying of Judah that like, ah, yeah, we, oh, do we really want to keep going? They've made fun of us. They've mocked us. That's one thing. But now they're, they're going to actually try to kill us. Do, can we really keep doing this? And so Nehemiah has to confront now not just psychological attacks, but physical attacks. And what's he do? Well, he neither frets nor flees. He refuses to be intimidated, and he refuses to run from what God has called him to do. Instead, he again, he prays first. But then he encourages the people to trust the strength of the God who has called them to this task. Verse 14 gives us this pep talk where he says, whoa, whoa, don't forget the power of the awe-inspiring Lord. Don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget the majesty of his name. And if he has called you to this, he's going to take care of you. He says, so trust the Lord, trust the awe-inspiring Lord. But then he also says something else. He also says, and fight. Stand up. Fight in that strength of the Lord. See, Nehemiah shows us that standing firm in whatever God has called us to in, in, in the midst of opposition requires two things. It requires faith and action. We see Nehemiah here show us faith and action. Faith is our, our trust in who God is, in what he does, and in where he sends us. It's a trust in the calling that we've been given. Many of you know Hebrews 11 verse 1 gives us a simple definition of faith. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. This is faith, that if God is who he says he is, right? he is our hope, he is our strength, we trust in him, and we know that that is true, whether we see him or not. Because I guarantee the swords and spears and arrows of the Israelites' enemies 
was more visible than the strength of God, right? Yes. But their hope was not in battle. It was in the strength of the Lord. Right? We must believe that God is going to handle whatever our enemy throws at us. That he is strong enough. That he is powerful enough. That our enemies cannot overcome him. In Genesis 18, verse 14, right? Genesis 18, God has come to Abraham and Sarah, and you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, and they, and they say, God comes and says, I'm going to make a great nation through you, Abraham. He goes, great, this is going to be awesome. And then 25 years go by with no child. <laughs> and God comes to him, he says, listen, next year at this time, I'm going to come back, and, uh, and you're going to have a kid. Right? And Abraham's, you know, pushing 100, Sarah's 90. And their response is what? Laughter understandably so, right? Like, yeah, good one, God. All right. Love to see how you're going to pull that one off. And what's God say to him? Genesis 18, verse 14. Is anything impossible for me? Is there anything you see that's stronger than me, that's more powerful than me, that is going to overcome me? Don't laugh at this. I'm God. You're not. Deal with it. Okay, he didn't actually say that part, but I feel like it's implied. See, being shored up in our faith, trusting that God is who he says he did, is that God will do what he says he is, then gives us the strength to stand firm, to trust in him all the more, but then it also propels us into action. It moves us forward to act. And that doesn't mean that we physically have to fight or that we physically should fight others around us when they present opposition to us. But we will have to act. Right? If we stand in faith, we will have, we have to act. In John 13, Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. Right? And at first they're kind of blown away like this, like, wait, what are you doing? You're you're the, you're the Messiah. Why are you washing our feet? And Jesus, is, and Jesus kind of looks at him. He's like, listen, I'm washing your feet. Now you go serve others. And in John 13, verse 17, he says, if you know these things, right, if you know the fact that you've been called to serve others, if you know these things, you are blessed. And then he says this, if you do them. Jesus says, you're not blessed if you know all the answers. You're not blessed if you have good head knowledge. He says, you're blessed if you carry that out. Right? We can't be people who sit on the sidelines and pretend we're contributing to the kingdom of God. If we have true faith, we must act. And I don't know what that's going to look like for each and every one of you in your life. Right? For you... Action may mean just setting time aside to pray for a coworker or pray for a neighbor or pray for someone in the community that you've had contact with. For you, it might mean sharing your faith with the, the random stranger that you end up striking up a conversation with in the grocery store. It might mean confronting a friend on the sin in their life. They mean taking time to consider the sin in your own life. But whatever it is, it's going to be a matter of pushing forward in your faith when your flesh is uncomfortable with it. 
But we always have to remember that none of this is about us. It's not about our authority. It's about the mission that God has put in front of us. When God gives us that calling, gives us that mission, gives us that purpose, we trust that he has called us. We trust in him, but we also have to act. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn, turn over to the, the New Testament, the book of Acts. I want to see this one thing. In Acts chapter 5, This is faith and action and the results of faith and action. In uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, here you have, you have Peter and it says uh, the, the apostles. We don't know which other apostles are there, but it says Peter and the apostles are, are preaching the gospel. They're teaching the people. And then they're arrested and they're put in prison by the, by the religious ruling class of Israel. And in the night, they are miraculously freed. So in the morning, the, the religious leaders come to the, to the jail to take them and put them on trial. And they're like, uh, these guys are gone. Like the, the prison cells are locked, but these guys are gone. And then they get news that these guys who are supposed to be in jail are standing in the temple preaching the gospel. They haven't run. They know their calling. Their calling is to preach the gospel in the temple. So they go, they get arrested, and is they're miraculously freed, they go right back to the temple and preach the gospel. And so the religious leaders again arrest them and bring them before them. And their response is just like, listen, we're going to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. You guys put him to death. You guys have rejected him. We will proclaim who he is. We are his witnesses. Right? And at this, the Pharisees said, just all these guys just are ticked. Right? They're like, well, let's, let's kill him. Let's put an end to this once and for all. But there's an observation that happens in, in chapter 5, verse, um, starting in verse 34. It says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you do to these men. Sometime, some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After this, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all the followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan is the work of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found to be fighting against God. Standing in God's strength, faith, and action. They trust that what they've been called to is what God has called them to. And even, even this Pharisee who looks at them is like, listen, I got my doubts. But what God says he's going to do, God carries out. God accomplishes his work. Let's not get messed up with that. Let's not get involved with that. He says, if this is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, it will succeed. We can stand in the strength of what God has called us to because if it is of God, it will succeed, whether we see it or not, whether we understand it or not. 
So Nehemiah and the people faced down their opposition by trusting God's will and standing strong in God's might. But even when their enemies' plans are thwarted, the danger around them persists. As they keep working, they see the need to finally rest in God's deliverance. Rest in God's deliverance. This passage ends, verse 15 through 23. It says, when our enemies heard that we, when our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people in Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. So this opposition continues. The people are called to rest in God's deliverance. First off, notice how the opposition was defeated. Right? In verse 15, it says, when they found out that we knew their plan and that we had frustrated it, we had overcome it, we defeated it. No, when we found out their plan and God had frustrated their plans. They continue to remember that this is not their strength. This is not their ability to fight. They have faith. They stand firm. But God does the work. God frustrated the plans. The people have valiantly kept about the work, and Nehemiah has put together this successful plan for them to follow, but at the end of the day, it is God who delivers them. And when more opposition comes, as they prepare for the next wave of opposition, he calls them to come, ready to fight. But again, he prefaces by saying, don't forget, God will fight for us. God is going to do his work. God is going to supply what we need. He will fight for us. And so the work continued with cautious purpose under the confidence of God's protection. Whatever rest they have, the ability to continue the mission comes because they rest in God's deliverance. See, and the same is true for you and me. We will only ever find rest when we find rest in God's deliverance from our struggles, from our heartaches, and from the opposition that rises against us. If our hope is in anything else to deliver us, anything else in the world, if we hope that will be enough for us, that will take care of us, that will deliver us, we will be disappointed, to say the least. Because we only rest when we find our deliverance in our God because he is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can deliver us. 
And listen, if you're like me, there are far too many times when you can look at your life and figure out, okay, here's how I tried to, to work all the angles. Here's how I tried to relieve all these tensions. Here's how I tried to figure out how to work this situation to, to end up being what's best for me. And I can tell you from experience that that has never, ever, ever worked out well. It might work out well for a moment, but it never works out. See, we have work to do. Yes, that's true. But our work is only useful when we rest in God's will and in his strength to provide our deliverance. And he always, always does. And what's more than that, right? If you hear that and you go, okay, God's, God provides deliverance. He calls us stuff. He's going to take care of us. Great. Awesome. Right? But I'm, Whatever. Right, if that's you, let me take this up a notch for you. Because we constantly remember that God's deliverance in the face of our opposition pales in comparison to the great deliverance offered through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. See, God in his infinite love saw fit to redeem us, to deliver us, not just from opposition against getting things done, not just against those who come against us trying to stop us from doing his will, but he provided deliverance from the fact that you and I deserve nothing but death and eternal separation from him because we are sinners at our core. But we've been redeemed, bought back from sin and death, given hope and joy and peace and celebration because God loved us so much that he refused to leave us in that state. And so he sent his son to do what we could never do, to live perfectly so that he could die as a sacrifice for our sins with his blood covering the penalty for our sins so that he could rise showing his power and his victory over death once and for all so that we never have to worry about that again. So that we could be made right before our perfect, holy, heavenly Father. Listen, if everything else falls apart in this world today, we have been delivered. Amen? Amen. We can rest in God's deliverance. We have been delivered. And no sin, no darkness, no death, no nothing can rip us from the hands of our deliverer. In the chaos and the confusion and the discouragement of this world, we rest in the deliverance of our God, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you and I are going to live on mission, if we as a church are going to live on mission, we must know that we will face opposition. We will face spiritual opposition as Satan to, seeks to hold back the programs of our God, as he will stir up fear and arrogance and doubt. And we'll face opposition from the world around us as they mock and ridicule your faith and try to tear you down as you go about the work that God has put before you. We'll face opposition from our own fallen flesh after we allow our heart and our minds to be shrouded by doubt, as we give in to the flesh, we become distracted and 
sometimes just disinterested in the self-discipline that we are called to hold as we walk in light of God's goodness. Opposition comes in a million different ways from a million different directions. And I don't say that to frighten us this morning, but to remind us that opposition is normal and it is constant. So we had better be ready for it. How do we become ready? We prepare our hearts to face down every and all opposition by allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to build up our perseverance and strengthen the calling we have received through the Holy Spirit. And to do this, we trust in God's perfect will. We stand firm in God's strength and we rest in the joy of the deliverance we have received through him. Church family, may we walk out of this place today ready to live with purpose, ready to move with a calling and on mission. And may we do so knowing that every opposition we face, while inevitable, has already been overcome. It has already been defeated by the power of the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that there is no opposition that can stand in the way of God's calling. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you for who you are. And we praise your great in your awesome name. And in the midst of what we must admit is a, a, a dark, fallen world, one in which it becomes easy to be distracted to be overwhelmed with doubt and fear, to have that opposition just seem so strong that there's no way we can overcome it. And in part, that's because we can't overcome it. It is beyond our strength, beyond our ability, but Lord, we thank you that what you have called us to, what you have set before us, you will fulfill by your strength, by your power, by your wisdom, by your goodness, by your faithfulness. Our call is to trust you, to stand in your strength, and to rest in your deliverance knowing that you are God and you are in control of all things. And so as we go, as we prepare for the week, the month, the year, the life ahead, may you remind us over and over and over again that there is no power greater than yours. There's no power greater than you. May we rejoice and seek your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.